Thank you all for being here this morning. Um, see, we have some some unfamiliar faces. Y'all picked a very strange morning to show up to Sunday school. <laughs> this will be fun. This will be fun. Um, all right. What I've put at the top of this page is a, a little bit of a diagram of what the rest of Isaiah looks like. I found this to be really helpful. Um, We've been plotting through this whole book, chapter by chapter, slowly by slowly. And as we do that, I mean, the benefit of that is we can go verse by verse and try to pull meaning out of the text that way. The, the downside of that style is sometimes you miss the big picture themes of what Isaiah is trying to show. Um, I stumbled across this little outline. We're, we're at this new section here, and it just so happens that this morning starts a brand new chunk of the book of Isaiah. According to the author from whom I, I stole this, it, this is the final chunk. And um, as you can see, it creates a um, what the academics called a, a chiasm or chiasm, um, where the end bookmarks of the chunk mirror each other, and then the inner sections mirror each other. So there's a focal point of this section, which will be um, a vision of what this says is eschatological hope or uh, the end of all things as this vision of glory, uh, what we have to look forward to as believers in Christ. Um, So that is what, going forward, Isaiah is going to be primarily about. Um, Leading up to that are oracles about the Gentiles. That's where we are this morning. The sections of this, that little diagram that are in bold, are bold because that's where we are this morning. Um, There's a chance we may get through this pretty quickly. There's only 12 verses in chapter 56. However, I've added a few verses from 57 because I think they help provide clarity. So we're going to cover 56 and a portion of 57, and that's our goal for this morning. Um, Starting out, I wanted to show you this verse from 57, the other part that's in bold, right underneath the diagram. And that is verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I, Yahweh, dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Um, To me, this verse really sums up the whole of what we're going to talk about, not only this week, but in coming weeks. Um, you can think of that as a sort of summary verse of what we're going to be looking at. Um, It will help to remember at this point that the sanctuary, every time there is a sanctuary in Scripture, which is the holy place, it's always on a mountain. Eden, although it doesn't actually say this in Genesis, it does say it in Ezekiel, that Eden is on a mountain. Uh, the temple is on Mount Zion. That's Jerusalem. It's a high and elevated place. Traditionally, Jerusalem was built 
on Eden, but that's not that important. Um, every time there's a sanctuary, it's always on the high place, right? The mountaintop experience where you encounter God. In this verse, Yahweh is saying, yes, I'm there. I'm on that high place. I'm in the temple. But unexpectedly, I'm also at the lowest point. Go as high as heaven. Psalm 139 says, God is there. Go down to the grave. There he is as well. All right. So that's what this verse is about, is that at the lowest and most outside point from the sanctuary, at the bottom of the, of the mountain, um, unexpectedly, you'll find God there too. Um, and that is encountering God in the place of exile. Um, for the people of Isaiah's day, this is exactly what they need to hear because at this point, they're either about to or they already have gone into exile and they're going to be wondering, where is God now? What is our relationship with God going to look like going forward? Um, God says, take heart because there in the outside, in the lowest point, you'll find me. Our common symbols that we use for Christianity actually show this. The cross is a meeting point of the high and the low. The symbol itself of the cross. It is a, it's a singularity that is formed from, the, from all four directions. High, low, east, and west. Um, the Eucharist um, also tells the same story. Um, when you take the bread and the wine... You're taking the most pure of foods and also the most abominable of foods. Blood was forbidden for um, God's people Mm -hmm. during much of the story until Christ says, now drink my blood. Mm -hmm. Right, so Christ takes this low, abominable thing and, and includes it into the story of the Eucharist. And he combines it with the high, pure thing, the bread that came down from heaven. Right, so you have a meeting point of the high and the low at the Eucharist. Um, the fish is a little more complicated. Um, it's the fish is a more complex symbol because it has a kind of a positive and negative aspect to it. But at the very least, we can say that the fish, as a symbol of Christ, is Christ at the lowest point. It's Christ in the water, Christ in uh, Sheol, Christ in the grave. All of these symbols are communicating. Christ being at the lowest point. That's what I'm trying to show here. Um, Does that make sense so far? Um, The lowest point is also the outermost point of the story. So, and you see that in the the uh, the ancient maps that we've talked about in other chapters. I don't want to rehash all of it, but I do want to point you back to that as way of reminder that in the ancient way of seeing the world. the lowest point of the map and the outermost point of the map are the same place. So when God is saying, you will find me in the heart of the lowly and contrite spirit, he's also that, that's him talking about gathering the outsiders, i.e. the Gentiles, in to the story that he's telling. Anything there before we dive into chapter 56? so far I'll just, I'll just throw in on blood you know, yeah. that prohibition began at Noah and the reason why 
life is in the blood. So I took that to mean that every time that a, a human consumes blood, then it is a usurpation of the Eucharist. It belongs exclusively to the blood of Christ, who is life, life itself. Good. All right, let's dive into chapter 56, shall we? I've sort of loosely divided these into sections just to help facilitate our time together this morning. It's a little arbitrary because this is all one long oracle. But let's read verses 1 and 2 first. Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Um, I want to I throw this out as a question to y'all because I'm honestly working through it myself and I'm not sure what to make of this. He brings up the Sabbath a couple times in this chapter. Um, we'll see it again in a little bit. And he's, he's sort of using it as a, as a stand-in for the whole law, as far as I can tell. He's saying, practice righteousness, keep justice, and, and the example that he gives of that is to keep the Sabbath. So I want to ask and, and sort of hear what y'all have to say, what does that mean for us today in the church age? Because we sort of see the Sabbath as fulfilled in Christ. Um, but he's talking about it as a very practical thing. So what does it mean for us in the church age to keep the Sabbath? It is one of the Ten Commandments. It's right up there with don't kill anybody. So it's pretty important. So how do we in the church age practice the Sabbath? Um, Dad led us through a series on the Sabbath, I don't know, what, a couple years ago? Something like that? Um, so I'm curious to hear what you have to say, but I also want to open it up to everybody. And let's talk about, as Christians, people in the church age, what does it mean to keep the Sabbath? <clears throat> Let's say the Sabbath is sort of one of those a good example of something in Scripture that has um, that you can approach from you know multiple ways of looking at it. You know, you you've got the it, it's it's a spiritual thing, um, it's a symbolic thing, and it's a practical thing. It's all three. Um, so you know, and it is a way prescribed to live in terms of action in the Old Testament. Um, you know, like the rest of the law, I mean, we don't, I mean, Jesus really singled out the Sabbath among a lot, number of other things in the Gospels in terms of like the fulfillment of it, in terms of teaching about it. He, he covers that more than a lot of the other stuff, for what it's worth. Mm -hmm. So, it's not something that to be legalistic about anymore, but it's not something that I think it's still a good way to live, you know, in, in some way. So. Well, it seems to me, um, and I'll open this back up. I don't want to be the only one talking here, but it seems to me that there are two extremes, and both of them are wrong in regards to the Sabbath. One extreme is to say that practicing the Sabbath is only a thing of spirit now, and it has nothing to do practically with how we live our life, because any time that you say something about our life with God is just spiritual, that's always a red flag. Does that make sense? Like, the resurrection of Christ. Well, that's just spiritual. Okay, now we've 
we've gone off course here. We've gone off course. Uh, pick any of them. Um, pick any of the the important things in our faith, and it's got to take on flesh and blood in our life. So there's one extreme: is is spiritualizing it to the exclusion of daily practice. Obviously, the other extreme is to become legalistic about it, which we're not supposed to do. Look, we're we're not Jewish. We're not bound by the Jewish code. We are Gentiles practicing following Christ. So whatever the Sabbath means for us today, it means something that's different from um, the same law that says that we can't eat pork. Does that make sense? So there are two extremes, and both of them seem to be wrong. They're somewhere in the middle. You know, we, I mean, we're supposed to enter into the Sabbath rest of Christ. You know, so in a sense, one says, as Christians, we are in perpetual Sabbath. Mm-hmm. And we learn to keep that Sabbath moment by moment because it's the resting place. Jesus said, enter into my rest. You know, they rested on the seventh day. God rested on the seventh day. Uh, you know, so he, he allows us to enter into that rest, into that Sabbath, Sabbath rest. And I think that, in some ways, is the fulfillment. That's both, like you say, that's both, that's both spiritual and, in a sense, like, you know, you know because you've got to do it every day, you've got to live in it. You know, so and acknowledge it. You know, so in your prayer life, or whatever it might be, that you will. Acknowledge it with great thanksgiving. Think about Christ has allowed us to enter into a rest. He says, Take my yoke upon you, my burden of life. I mean, I mean, so, I mean we, get, we, we get to lay it all on Him. And we can just lay over there on, in, his, in His lap <laughs> and uh, sit together with Him in high places. You know, so, uh, but, I mean, you know, that's kind of that's kind of way I, I look at it. But it doesn't take away from its importance. It increases its importance. So you see it as as every day yeah, in our life with Christ is the Sabbath. Every day is Sunday. You know, because so, you know, we've changed the day. It's not Saturday anymore. It's Sunday. And, and then, you know, I think it's in Corinthians talks about you know, not, not holding one day higher than another. You know, and, um, not placing one day as more important than some other day. Because that's what people get into. Mm-hmm. Since we have seen all our days as resting with Christ. And when you get into trouble, things get bad, it looks like things are going south on you, stop for a minute and say, I, I, I want to climb up in your lap, Daddy, and just have you whisper in my ear how much you love me. Um, I don't know. Yeah. This is what you're looking for. I don't know what I'm looking for. It was Jesus' custom to go to church. It was his custom. And in the day we live, Hebrews 10 talks about not forsaking the assembly of yourselves together. Uh, it's a matter of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much more as you see the day approaching. So we're being a testimony to our neighbors to go to work with anyone if they see us for the churches. My brother said encouraged me even yesterday. Because I feel like that's a very good practice. I'm not talking about the law or 
chasing rabbits here, but going to the house of God is very much a part. And the really lowbrow argument for this is that I enjoy church. <laughs> I missed it last week when we weren't able to gather together. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it was there was something missing. When uh, when Jesus uh, defends his disciples who, who were gleaning grain uh, by saying that the Sabbath was made of man, uh, that was on the level of the physical rest, you know, of not yeah. picking your corn off the stalk. Uh, uh, but it also has spiritual application. You know, it's it's a uh, it's kind of like a matter of of turning your attention away from self. On the Sabbath, you're supposed to lay everything down and you know stop thinking about your needs or what you want. You know, it's it's a cessation from work, and it's good for us physically. In the same way, it's good for us spiritually, and this is what the rest in Christ is that that David was talking about. You know, you've laid down any hope in your own merit. You know. Serving yourself spiritually, and you're throwing that all your attention all in Christ. So, I guess my point is that it still has physical and spiritual application to us. The spiritual is more eternal, but there, we also live in the here and now, and it is good for us to lay down our self-interest and our self-absorption. Uh, if not, if we can't do it every day, at least, you know, pursue that discipline at a at physical level and, and let our bodies rest. In Ephesians, you can't learn to walk or stand until you learn to sit. Watch me do the book Well, anything else on the Sabbath? I don't have any answers here, but this is something that I'm working through myself. I think it's a little bit akin to do not take the name of God in vain. You know, if you're going to attach yourself to God, then you need to pursue that behaviorally, you know, in, in your physical being. If you're going to attach yourself to the rest of Christ, then maintain that rest, you know, observe that rest, uh, and, uh, and again, let go of any attempt you know, to earn merit on your own. It seems to me that, this, this is no answer, just an observation. It seems to me that the command about the Sabbath is very similar to the command about graven images. In that the answer to the riddle in both of those commandments is Christ. You shall not make any graven image for Christ himself is the image of God. Christ is the answer to that commandment. And in Christ, that commandment is, is now freely broken. There are images all over the place in Christendom. Graven images all over the place. Yeah. 
and this is part of what the church just naturally does, right? Far from breaking the commandment, it's actually in Christ. It is from Christ that all of these images come forth. Most of them are of Christ. Um, It seems to me that the command of the Sabbath is similar. It's fulfilled in Christ, and somehow on the other side of Christ fulfilling it is this place of immense freedom. Um, well, and a cool aspect of that is it's not, it, it isn't, these images are not of Christ. Because we don't know what he looked like. They're images of our perception of him. Yes. And you go over in the entire world and every people group pictures Christ is like them. So, no, he, he is one of us. It doesn't matter what we look like. <laughs> he looks like us. Any thoughts on the college side of the room? <laughs> Jesus worked a little bit on the Sabbath. Healing people. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, there's nothing else with that, then we'll move on. Um, before we read this next section, can I get someone to look up a another Old Testament passage for me? Any volunteers? Uh, Someone look up Deuteronomy 23. 23? Yeah. Alright. In fact, if you would, just for effect, could you go ahead and read it? The first few verses of the chapter. No one who's... <laughs> you jerk. I didn't, I didn't tell you at first what it was going to be. <laughs> no one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. All right, that's enough. Okay. <laughs> it's that first part that I wanted y'all to hear. Yeah. He's my son. I can call him a jerk. <laughs> All right, this is a very clear prohibition in the Torah. Eunuchs do not get to enter the holy place. Now let's read verse 3 of 56. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house... And within my walls, a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. This stands almost in direct contrast to what we just read in Deuteronomy. Where before the eunuch is wholly separate from the, um, the holiness of what is happening in the sanctuary. Now God is saying... Uh, with the eunuch, I will do things that are way cooler than whatever happened in the sanctuary. Does that make sense? Like, it is through uh, the eunuch that um, the story will find its fulfillment. Um, I will give them an everlasting name, an eternal name, that shall not be cut off. Um, the fathers are very quick to tie this couple of verses to 
uh, the eunuch in the in Acts, who, by the way, was reading the book of Isaiah. Right. So that's not lost on the fathers when they connect these things, um, and that he is sort of a a forerunner of the Gentiles in far off lands receiving the gospel, and it is within these um, you know profane pagan lands that the gospel finds you know uh, fertile soil. So it's looking forward to the new covenant. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and the eunuch is a symbol of that. The new covenant, yeah. Yes. There's an aspect of the law, too, is that it, it is a description of God's perfection and the, the level of impossibility or even unfairness. Yeah. I mean, most people, there have been people who chose to become eunuchs, but most people did not. Right. Uh, there, there's an equally... There are equally embarrassing passages about the menstrual cycle and semen emissions. This is not fair. <laughs> we don't have any control over that. Um, but it's part of the impossibility of meeting God's perfection. So what does God, what's the remedy? Well, God himself becomes a man, is perfect, and impedes that perfection on us. You know, it's under the dispensation of grace. Which is it's great. Um, practically, what does this look like throughout Christendom? Well, many many a priest has not born children, but has had spiritual children that are far more than what he would have had um, through any sort of biological means. Um, in in times past, when we've taught this at Christ Community, we've invoked the Dinker's last name because for us in our in our little community, they've been a shining example of what this can look like. You have uh, a couple who have been married for years and years and years who haven't had any children themselves, but have discipled so many young men in the faith who truly see them as their parents, right? And these are people who have grown up in our community. And so the Dinkers are shining examples of this. Um, I mean, we have a, a another budding example in our community with with um, y'all two right here. Um, the more people you two disciple, the more those disciples will call you their parents. You know, this is already starting to happen, and it will happen more and more as your discipleship continues. Um, this is a beautiful thing, and this is this is what this is what having children in the new covenant looks like, um, and it is it is far more glorious, um, and, and the way it puts it here is a better name than sons and daughters. Um, I'd like to also say just to piggyback on that. Yeah. it's not lost on the the mercy and grace of God, but the fact that the thinkers also discipled me, and I lived with them. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Now I'm back in the community. So, so now your spiritual children are their spiritual grandchildren. <laughs> right. That's a very beautiful thing. All right. So, um, we're going to transition from the symbol of the eunuch to a, another symbol that is actually related. Um, and this is just following Isaiah's train of thought. First, he talks about eunuchs, and now he's going to talk about dogs. They're actually very similar. The eunuch for the royal household is the guard dog. That was, that's the purpose that the eunuch and the royal household served. 
Isaiah was part of a noble family, the similarity would not have been lost on him. It's a very natural thing in his train of thought to transition from eunuch to guard dog because they serve the same function for the family. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord. I'm just going to read this whole section first before we start to break it down. And to be his servants, the foreigners becoming God's servants, the foreigners becoming his eunuchs, as it were. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. So now he's gathering the eunuchs in, right? And make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. All you beasts of the field come to devour. All you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind. They're all without knowledge. They're all silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they're shepherds who have no understanding. They've all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let us get... Let me get wine, let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. The righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands, for the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace, they rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. But you draw near, sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman, Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? You see the imagery of a dog there? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit, you who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys and under the clefts of the rocks? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, very difficult passage here. Um, So let's talk about it. There are two dogs in this passage. There are the uh, keepers of the Jewish code, the Pharisees as it were, who Isaiah says, you know, you think you're all holy and stuff, but you're actually just dogs. They're shepherds who have no understanding. They're dogs who can't even do their job. They're asleep. They're sleeping dogs. They're not even good at what they do. Meanwhile, he's going to gather the foreigner in and integrate the foreigner into the story. And they are like dogs that he's bringing in. Um, And he's going to give them food to eat. And somehow, despite the fact that they're profane, uh, they're going to find their place in the story. Um, Now, this is a very difficult thing. Um, and it's, it's hard to put words to because it's tracking the story and the mystery of the gospel going to the Gentiles and then being grafted in to, um, grafted into the covenant. Dogs in the ancient world were not pets. They were not luxury animals. They were practical and they served a purpose and those of you who have been to a third world country will have seen this. Yeah. Um, 
the purpose of a dog is to provide a protective layer or protective coat. Um, it might be over sheep, protecting the sheep, guarding them. It might be over a house. There might be, they might provide a protective coat for a house. But that's the function of a dog in the ancient world is to be a protective layer. Um, that is, a dog is, is a thing of the outside. It's a thing of the margin. Um, I'm going to try to say this in a way that makes sense. Bear with me because I'm still working on fleshing this out into, into words. Um, throughout Scripture, the dog is a symbol of the outsider or the foreigner who has the potential to be brought in. Does this make sense? Right. The dog is a profane thing. It's an unholy thing. It's a thing of the outside, a thing of uncleanness. But th- throughout Scripture, the dog is a symbol of the outsider who has the potential to be brought in, to serve a function in the story. The dog doesn't get to, in the ancient world, uh, eat the food off the table. It's not the child, but he might get to eat the crumbs. Right. So the story of the Canaanite woman. Yeah. The story of the Canaanite woman is the culmination of a lot of uses of dog symbols throughout the Old Testament. And it's not just an arbitrary story that's pulled out of a hat. The, the Canaanite woman, in her faith, deeply understands what some of these old stories mean. And I think, Nick, you've preached on this recently, so feel free to jump in at any point. But I'm going to try to explore some of the dog symbolism here in the Old Testament. So, when the Israelites are going to enter the Promised Land, there are only two people who are still alive who remember being led out of Egypt. Do you remember who these two people are? Caleb and Joshua. Caleb and Joshua. Do you know what Joshua's name means? Yes, Joshua. It's... Jesus, yeah, yeah. Do you know what Caleb's name means? Dog, yes. All right, so there's this, uh, there's this person uh, at the front of this train of um, people arriving to the promised land. You have Jesus and his dog leading the people into the promised land. They cross the river and... Um, Caleb, the portion of land that's allotted to him is a portion on the outskirts. It's an outer area. Right, so there's something about this character that has to do with dog symbolism in Scripture. Um, I believe, if I remember correctly, and I'm doing this off memory, that Caleb is um, associated with the Canaanite people. But I, I may be wrong about that, so don't hold me to it. Regardless, the Canaanite people throughout Scripture are associated with dogs. You may recall Goliath even calls himself a dog. Right? Yes. Yeah. Um, there, are, um, there are massive grave sites in the Canaanite lands that are full of just dog bones. The, do- the, the Canaanites really revered dogs. I don't think they worshipped them, but, but they meant something. So you would have these massive grave sites. Say what? I don't know because I think that comes from Latin. It's possible. I don't know. 
I don't want to say yes and then it not be true. I would love if it was true, but I'm not sure that it is. Um, all right, what to say next? Um, that symbolism, Jesus and the dog. Yes. I'm trying to decide which... I don't want to bog us down in the, in the symbolism of it. So when Adam and Eve are leaving the Garden of Eden and they're going to the outer place, God first wraps them in a protective layer of skin. And it doesn't say what animal that is. And so we can sort of... <coughs> we can speculate a little bit. Um, could be that it's the skin of a lamb. That would be very symbolically significant. Um, that God in the first institution of sacrifice wraps his people up in something that will later point to himself as being their protective covering. Um, Or it could be the start of this uh, symbolism of the the wild animal because they're going into the outside. Yeah, they're going into the outer place. Um, And this is very important. As they come back in, they will shed that outer layer as they come back into the holy place. Elijah does this, by the way, before he ascends into heaven. When he crosses the river, which is not unlike Caleb and Joshua crossing the Jordan River into the promised land, Elijah crosses a river before he ascends into heaven and he strips off his animal skin before he does so. Right, so... um, Back up with that again. I didn't quite understand. They shed the... So... Before they go into the holy place. Yeah, whenever you come back to Eden... Whenever you come back to Eden, you're going to shed this body of death. You will put off the old man and enter into glory like a child. Most people who have been baptized were baptized naked. That historically has been the way it's been done. Yeah. Um, I think, too, like what you're saying about the dogs and the symbolism and being the outsider, that's actually not, I mean, that, that symbolism. That way of thinking about dogs is still around today yes. in our culture. I mean, my, I mean, a lot of people now have dogs in the house. We did, but like my mother, when she was growing up, and she would never have gone along with the idea of having a dog in your house. A dog belonged in the yard. Yeah. You know? yeah. And so uh, that just that way of thinking is not that removed from us even now. Yes. Um, we, all, we had dogs, but they all—they were only outside dogs. She just we didn't want dogs in the house. So it's sort of the same idea. I think what is lost on us, I agree with that 100%. I think what is lost on us is the role that, that dogs serve humans with. They have, they have function. They have a purpose. Um, and, you know, for most of us, dogs are just, you know, fun pets and, you know, companions. Yeah. Um, yeah, the dog is kind of a mixed, mixed bag. Yes, because he is the the companion of man, right? His best friend. Usually, it's only one man in the yes. ancient world. Yes, he's a friend of one man, and he's a danger to everybody else. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, in in the hope that this might help tie together some of the symbolic threads that we've been discussing, I'm going to read you a portion of Revelation. And this is from Revelation 22, and I'm going to read a couple verses here. Um, just, just listen along. Blessed are those who wash their robes 
so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. There's the baptism. You have to be baptized before you can enter into paradise. Okay. You have to um, put off the old man before you can enter back into Eden again. Um, outside are the dogs. That's the very next thing it says. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to enter. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So there's this contrast. Outside the holy city are these things of profanity, these people of profanity, these pagan cultures, these pagan ways of life. And yet, in the story, it says, blessed are those who wash themselves so that they may enter. So some of these dogs get to enter. Does that make sense? That's us. We're the dogs who got to enter. The Gentiles. That's exactly what this is. I'm going to point out one more thing while we still have time. And that is that there's this uh, strange phenomenon throughout Christendom. Um, and it's strange for us, we who think ourselves so smart in our modern sensibilities... Um, but there's this strange phenomenon throughout Christendom that the people on the outermost Gentile lands were imagined to be more dog-like. This, and, and at this point, you can flip over your page. Uh, there are uh, many practices among the old pagan cultures uh, that actually... Um, this idea of imagining them as dogs didn't come from nothing. For instance, many of these pagan cultures drank blood. Many of them practiced cannibalism. Some of them sharpened their teeth. There's a really funny account of a, uh, a traveler visiting Indonesia and visiting the, uh, the islands there. And he wrote about uh, his encounter with the, the uh, people who had been living there for who knows how long. And he said, uh, man, the women of, of Indonesia are the most beautiful women I've ever seen. They are just endowed with uh, more beauty than we've ever seen with women. But the men just look like dogs. <laughs> well, they, they there was a practice of them where they would sharpen their teeth. And they would, they would you know, they, they, in the minds of these Westerners, they behaved in a more animal-like fashion. This is all very not politically correct for us as moderners to think of the outsider person as a dog, but but within the story of Christianity are stories of dogs being grafted in. Caleb is an example. There are other examples within Christendom. Um, and so, if I may, I'd like to tell you a story of a guy named Reprobus. Um, this may be a strange story to you, but, but this is within our tradition. Um, Reprobus is revered by um, every major branch of Christianity. The Catholics revere him, the Orthodox revere him. He's a major player um, in the story of the saints. Reprobus's name, it's a Latin name that means cast out or outcast. So that's significant. Reprobus was a man who, like the others who lived in the outer territories had the head of a dog. He was a dog-headed man. Um, he was an outlaw. He was a vicious killer. He was a pagan uh, warrior. 
who did anything and everything he wanted to. Um, he was slave to his animal desires. Um, he had in his head... Oh, by the way, he's from the land of Canaan. He had in his head that he wanted to serve the greatest warlord. And so he would go from uh, kingdom to kingdom uh, serving warlords uh, via conquest until he found a greater warlord and then he would change loyalties and then serve the next one. Um, it got to where he got so high up the hierarchy of warlords that uh, he ended up serving the devil himself. So he goes into the outermost place you can go as far away from the kingdom of God as you can get and he's literally a warrior for the devil. By all intents and purposes he's a demon at this point. Um, an, an animal-headed uh, pagan uh, conqueror. Until one day he notices that the devil is scared of the cross. And then he says, well, there's a warrior greater than the devil. I must serve this one instead. So he leaves the devil and he goes in search of Christ. So he's wandering through the wilderness looking for Christ and um, he encounters a, a, a monk a hermit who's out there um, just practicing the spiritual disciplines, quietly living out the faith. And Reprobus, this uh, giant monster of a, you know, warrior, asks this monk, I'm sure the monk was terrified, he asks the monk, um, where do I find Christ to serve him? And so the monk gives him acts of penance to do um, in order to shed his animal skin. And he says, well, first you need to fast. And Reprobus tries, but he can't because he's a dog. <laughs> well, then the monk says, well, uh, if you can't fast, then you should pray. And so Reprobus tries, but he fails at that too. And so Reprobus um, is given a, a different task. The monk, in his wisdom, tells Reprobus, well, go and stand at the river like Caleb and like Elijah. Go stand at the river and as the pilgrims come through on their way to the Holy Land, carry them on your back across the river. And that will be where you find your place in the kingdom. You will be the bridge for others coming in. You may not ever be able to enter the holy place fully, but you can be the bridge. So he does, and that is his, that's his act of penance. And that is how he serves Christ. Um, not in conquest and fighting, but... Um, as a creature of safety and um, as, a, as a, a wild animal on whom people can depend for service. Um, a child comes to the river and he carries this child like all the others on his back and as they're going across the river the child gets heavier and heavier and Reprobus almost drowns in the process. Um, somehow by some miracle they make it to the other side. Reprobus who's you know gasping for air asks the child as he puts him down, why were you so heavy? And the child says, because I was carrying the sins of the whole world. Oh, wow. um, so there, doing his simple act of service, Reprobus encounters the living God. And just like that, the child ascends to heaven like Elijah. And, uh, and there, uh, Reprobus is no longer a dog. He is transformed into a man. Um, he takes on the name of St. Christopher, which means God-bearer. Um, so, um, take that story for what it's worth. 
that's an inversion of the Greek myth. Yes, the it is. The ferryman that took people across the river Styx, I don't remember his name, into yeah. Hades, into death. Uh, but Reprobus is, is helping people cross the river into life. And of course, it was a three-headed dog that uh, guarded the gates of yeah. Hades. Yes. So within the story of Isaiah that we just read is the seed of this symbolism. And the dog throughout Christendom has been a picture of the, the Gentiles who, for all their profanity and for all their, um, their outsideness, there is the potential for them to be gathered in. And that's us. Um, we, are, we are the dogs who uh, have yet to fully experience what all life in Christ means. We are far from the center, y'all. Um, and yet... Uh, we are finding our place in the story. So that seems like as good a place as any to end. I would say, and yet the Canaanite woman, in my yeah. mind, was one of two Gentiles that ever made any sense in responding to Christ's yeah. questions and so forth. He marveled at her faith. He marveled at it. He marveled at it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Thank you all for your attention. Thank you. Thank you.